Welcome to Season 2 of EdTech Insiders, where we talk to the most interesting thought leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, educators, and investors driving the future of education technology. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an EdTech veteran with over 10 years of experience at top EdTech companies. Michael Preston, Ph.D., is the executive director of the Joan Gans Cooney Center, a pioneering thought leader at the intersection of technology, media, and children's learning. He leads the center's efforts to explore new frontiers and new literacies, to support and translate research into action, and to guide the field toward better outcomes and opportunities for kids. Previous to Joan Gans Cooney, Michael co-founded CS for All, the hub for the National Computer Science for All movement. After launching a 10-year partnership in New York City to provide high-quality computer science to every student in the nation's largest public school system, CS for All now helps other cities and regions across the country replicate the progress made in New York. Michael also designed and led digital learning initiatives at the New York City Department of Education, programs for middle and high school computer science, for personal learning, and digital literacy. Zaza Caviadondo brings over 15 years of designing learning experiences with stakeholders across the entire education ecosystem. Zaza has worked with clients such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, IEEE, edX, Guild Education, Entangled Solutions, and was formerly the Director of Industry Partnerships for the Joan Gans Cooney Center, the research and innovation arm of Sesame Workshop, where she built a roadmap for a new business unit focusing on leveraging Sesame IP to support youth-friendly digital designers. Zaza holds a PhD in learning science and technology design from Stanford University. She's also the co-author of Taking Design Thinking to School and a speaker on the future of learning. Michael and Zaza, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. It's good to be with both of you, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I can say the same. So let's start off with just a 10,000-foot view and overview. In a couple of sentences, I'd like to ask each of you sort of what first brought you into education and EdTech? What's your sort of origin story? Michael, why don't we start with you? It's funny. I've only really ever worked in EdTech. I did have a brief spell at my first job out of college working for a nonprofit. But when I moved to New York City, I desperately wanted to have a job that was related to the public school system and found my way in at a time when the internet had just arrived in schools and nobody knew what to do with it. Like just getting the hardware and the, and the cables and everything hooked up was its own kind of mountain to climb. And once the stuff was installed, nobody really knew what to do. So that to me seemed like a really exciting opportunity. I had always had a computer in my house growing up because my dad worked for Bell Labs. And so, you know, we would like hook up the phone to the receiver and dial in and stuff. And there was not much you could do on the computer other than write little programs, but I was totally hooked. I loved learning. I loved technology. What I saw in New York City schools was incredibly inequitable. And also it seemed like what could be ed tech seemed really unimaginative or, or just a vast unknown. And so it just seemed like a really rich place to go. And so that's how I got started. And I never really left. Yeah, that moment where the internet first came into schools and nobody knew what to do with it was pretty, you know, sort of wide open opportunity. Uh, Zaza, how about you? What is your origin story in education and ed tech? So I have two parents who are both educators and I grew up going to college with my mom. She was a teacher trainer and 
I think as early as I remember, I was hanging out with the teachers and thinking about how to teach. And so that's just always, you know, steeped in that world. And when I was, I think this was the summer before college, I was visiting my brother in Texas and I was watching The Lord of the Rings, the trilogy on DVD. And I don't know if you, you all remember DVDs, but, you know, you had <laughs> the one side had the all the discs for the films and on the other side they had the making of, which is about nine hours. So it's like 18 hours total of Lord of the Rings. And I was just enthralled with the process of making the story and just all the technology that went into that. And I was like, wow, what if we applied this to education in some way? And so from then on, it was just a a task to find ways to to kind of think about um, and explore the creation of educational experiences. And that's got me, (laughs) yeah, that got me started on a very long and winding but fulfilling journey. Yeah, well, one of the GSV theses on education is, you know, Hollywood meets learning. And that's part of their investment thesis. And I I hear that in your in your Lord of the Rings, you know, what if we did this for education story? I love that. Our audience for this podcast is EdTech founders, EdTech investors, a lot of people who work in the field, who observe it from different perspectives. But I bet that not that many are that familiar with the Jungans Cooney Center at uh, Sesame Workshop. It's, it's a research and innovation lab. It's all about media and education. Michael, can you give an overview of Jungans Cooney, where it came from and its goals and who Jungans Cooney herself? I think you're right. Not many people know who Joan is. She is the visionary founder of Sesame Street and the Children's Television Workshop, which later became renamed Sesame Workshop, where we are now. Joan, in the 1960s, was a documentary producer at Channel 13 in New York City, basically studying the lives of folks in in urban poverty and saw how widespread televisions were in, in apartments and homes around the city and had this idea that, you know, similar to your comment about where Hollywood meets education, right? This idea that kids were enthralled by what they saw on TV. And so the potential for engagement and reach were, were already there, but no one had really harnessed that for a positive outcome for kids, right? So that created a kind of how might we come, excuse me, moment for Joan and her co-founder, Lloyd Morissette, who was at the Carnegie Corporation at that time. And together, they kind of schemed to create this, this new experiment that became Sesame Street. It was funny, I was looking back at this founding report that she wrote that was published in 1966. We actually republished it in 2019 for Sesame's 50th birthday. But there is a page where she talks about how television has a lot of potential to educate, but it also provides endless distractions from pursuits of the mind, she says, and that any high quality education program that you put on TV would have to, could both break new ground, but also risk a lot of criticism of from purists, right? That you would have to entertain in, in your mind that that both things were possible. And I feel like that's no better template than the world we live in today, where the, obviously the media ecosystem is beyond what anybody could have possibly conceived in 1966, but it is like and, and ever expanding, you know, every year something, many new things will, will be invented. In the 15 years that the, the Cooney Center has been around, we were started as a, an independent innovation lab within Sesame to think about those questions, but how to bring the ethos that drove what made Sesame great out into the world is a challenge that I think we could rise, rise to meet the challenge today, but I think we're going to have to continuously rise to meet the challenge. Yeah. So, I mean, it was really an incredibly visionary idea in the mid sixties. And I have some history with Sesame. My, my mother was the research director of children's television workshop for my entire life growing up. 
which became Sesame Workshop. So I spent a good amount of time as a kid in that world. And it is an incredible group of educators and media creators. And it's so interesting to take some of those learnings originally from the 60s and then from 15 years ago, and now continually think about the changing media landscape and how it can be leveraged and used for really high quality digital education, just like we used television back then. So let's bring us up to the current day. What are some of the things that Joan Gans Cooney is doing, the Joan Gans Cooney Center is doing in 2022? We are beyond television. We have so many different technologies. What is the sort of theory about what types of media you study and how you connect them to education and education policy. Zaza, I'd love to hear you on this. And then, Michael, you can join in as well. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm sure Michael can do a, a much better job than I can just giving you an overview of the types of projects that are going on. Okay, what makes the Joan Gans Cooney Center really special, from my point of view, is trying to find how research can sort of precede innovative ideas as opposed to reflecting on things that have already been done. So really bridging that that gap between, you know, the people who are out there, the achievers who are doing and, you know, building really cool things, which I think comes with it for you to be a founder of, you know, let's say an app or, or, or some kind of technology that kids are using. You really have to believe in it and, and, and push and you have to make tough decisions about you know, how do we do this by a deadline? How do we do this and sort of meet a market need? And oftentimes, I think you, you're faced with having to make tough decisions, especially design decisions, whereas a researcher has sort of the luxury of time, right, that you can sort of create this like longitudinal study and, and, and take your time and, and sort of look at things, many different iterations. And so we're trying to marry those two practices together. Like, how can you help founders and creators and developers be more intentional, be more iterative in how they create something. I think that's a value that came from Joan Gans Cooney in the TV days, right? In the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and that we're continuing to apply today. What this means is bringing kids into the R&D lab and having kids be a part of the design process and have them kind of brainstorm with you. I know that a lot of people out there do work with kids, but it tends to be at the end of the process, right? Like, let's use you, let's bring you in as user testers and tell us if you like this. But this is different, like actually coming up with ideas with them as partners. Yeah, that's incredibly important. And as you say, a lot of product people and, and business folks in ed tech, even though you're building for often for K-12 or for kids, don't have as much time or luxury to spend with kids as you might expect. So how does this manifest? Uh, Michael, maybe you can describe some of the publications or sort of the areas of research in which this philosophy of bringing learners and you know children into the process as early as possible, how does that manifest? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting position for us to be in in a unique way, I think, because as part of Sesame, we get to be sort of value-driven first. We have the outcomes for kids are really more of our bottom line rather than any other sort of market forces, things that all of the startups in the space need to think about as well. But we could also hopefully motivate them by this idea that if they do well for kids and kids do well, that that will ultimately be rewarding for them because their products will have more impact, they will have bigger market share and such. So Ultimately, we believe that both of those things can happen at the same time. And then 
related to what Zaza just shared, you know, kids, we see kids and families as our partners in that. And so elevating their voice and supporting participatory methods in that process is part of what we're trying to do here as well. Also bringing all the research that we know tends to be neglected because it's, it's hard and accessible, slows you down, that kind of stuff. And so really, actually, I was at a, somebody last week accused us of, instead of being an accelerator, that we're a slowinator. And I guess that that isn't, I wouldn't have treat, I don't think that was praised necessarily. It wasn't intended that way, but I thought it was nice. I guess the, the, the quandary then is how slow or how medium speed can you go and, and kind of get people moving in the right direction. We obviously do want to work with industry. That's where the great ideas, the innovative practices can really shape kids' experience, but we want to provide some sort of meaningful support to that process. So the priorities that we're looking at are designing with and for kids, uh, which is the area in which Zaza and I collaborated extensively last year. We're also interested in elevating ideas about what children's well-being looks like in digital spaces, a sort of a North Star approach to this. Like there's and we can talk more about this, but you know, there's a lot of attention being paid right now to making products safe. The California Age Appropriate Design Code, for example, is one of the more recent entries into that work. But if if we're establishing kind of a new floor for what we think quality is, what would maybe build from that floor, the new floor? And there are other kind of communities that we're working in. There's industry, but we're also collaborating with the public media system right now to try and think about how they might engage older kids after they grow out of the PBS Kids demo. And so that too is very much a ground up, you know, work with the designers, work with the young people kind of approach as uh, where we feel like if everybody's in the same room and has a thoughtful way of working together, we might get further together in the slowinator. So <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Michael, I think that's awesome. I know it wasn't meant as a compliment. I don't think I we think... should brand ourselves with that though. Do I, you? Identifying <laughs> identifying the places in the process where you should slow down is an important part of doing a good job, right? So I mean I think an interesting example from your site and something that I would definitely recommend our uh, some of our ed tech listeners go check out is this play test with kids initiative, this digital toolkit about how to actually work with kids in children's products. It's methods and techniques that have been used by by Osmo, by Tokoboka. I know Kylie Sobel, one of the authors of this, is now at Duolingo, this stuff from the MIT Media Lab. And I think that's maybe, you know, that's it's one of many things, but it's one where you can see how slowing down right at the moment where moments where you're, you really want it to work for learning, work for engagement, work for well-being, work for the kids that you're trying to serve may end up be, you know, that famous phrase about if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. It feels like, you know, that's where you're thinking there, right? You go, go together with a research organization like the Joan Gans Cooney Center, you can go really far and make something that will actually work for the long term. That was really good, Alex. That should be one plus yeah, Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I know that you have a project called the Learning Lab, which is not up on the site yet. Can I ask a little bit about how that works? Yeah. So well, building from the Playtest with Kids website, which is all the things you just said, really it was a, that was kind of like our contribution to the field in the sense that there are a lot of uh, we come to this work I think with a lot of humility because we know there are a lot of people who are expert in various ways across all the different methods folks have for developing a new a new educational product or, or anything really for the field um, involving kids. And so this team that we worked with 
had been veteran designers themselves and had seen the absence of, of supporting materials or community around this work. And so worked extremely hard to build out the resources through lots of generative sessions and uh, physical playing card testing with with partners and other companies across the field, you know, building a bit of a network of folks and then turning it into something that can be just easily adopted elsewhere. But as hopefully an entry point for folks who understood that at least engaging kids in the thing they've already made would be good and a starting point for thinking more broadly, like what if we actually had a more participatory process from the beginning? What if we consulted research and so forth? So that became an entry point for us. The Learning Lab is is this sort of Sesame as a service idea, where if Sesame methods were actually deployed into the field, how could we do that in a way that was not overwhelming to a product team or an entrepreneurial person who had a really cool idea, but not a lot of time or background in this kind of work? So how could we bring in expert ideas, elevate research that was relevant to the product in question, and then really support a participatory process where kids were helping to drive? That to us was the pinnacle the thing we hoped most people would get to because of the unique insights kids can provide directly into the development process. So playtesting tends to be about you know informing the, an existing product through like really thoughtful and creative questioning that elicits good ideas from kids responding to something. But if you if you go with the, to the, uh, the the sort of like beginning ideation stage where you think of kids more as your partners, you might actually get some unique insights about what they really want that there's really no other way to get. And so at the other end of the learning lab, really the, the I guess the, the play on words in the learning lab is that the learners are the adult designers and that they are, are benefiting from, again, the, the knowledge base on which we're all working currently, but also the unique insights and perspectives that kids can bring. I love that. That that makes a lot of sense. And it's 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 really inspiring. As somebody who's been on the product side, it's really amazing how infrequently learners are brought into the process in any way at the beginning of projects. There's a lot of assumptions made. There's a lot of voices in the room that are making their guesses from the experience about what they think will work. And it's only later that the kids actually come in. One project from the Joan Gans Cooney Center that stood out to me is the Buy With For Youth project. And it reminds me a lot of what you're saying, uh, uh, Michael, about bringing teens and tweens into the conversation to think about, you know, what should the future of public media look like? What should what could educational media do in a very different media environment than you know we've ever had before? And there were a lot of findings that just really jumped out to me. Ones about representation or stereotypes or uh, you know a desire for for trusted perspectives and this sort of disinformation world that that all of our uh, young people are exposed to all the time. Would you want to give a little bit of an overview of some of the outcomes of that project and how that's been playing out? It has been such an exciting partnership for us. We're now three years into this and I think have at least a few more to go. The initial, it was instigated by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which of course is the intermediary organization between Congress and the public media system. Basically, they, they support a lot of uh, real, the, the sustenance of stations all over the country, television and radio stations, as well as the big national network players that we all know, like PBS and NPR. But they also, in addition to being stewards of the system broadly, they are also, you know, looking at, into the future and identifying challenges and opportunities. And, and this one identifies, I think, both in the sense that the next-gen audiences, right? So thinking about the teen and tween audiences between, say, the ages of 10 and 18 
are completely underserved by public media that for strategic reasons, folks know that public television has really served little kids really well. And Sesame has been a part of that story for 50 more plus years, but that upon, I guess, age seven or eight, kids tend to, to go off into the wild west of, of all the digital things that the Cooney Center thinks about too. But it became an opportunity both to think about how to engage that target audience, but also to leverage what makes public media so great. There's a network of about 330 distinct station entities with a general manager. Let's say it's hard to count public TV and radio stations, but that's one way to think about it. And they're all over the country, big and small, different sizes of markets and communities and so forth. So extremely diverse system that has grown up in a very decentralized way in order to support the local needs of their communities. And so what, the question is, what do you do when media is global? When people are increased, their people's attention is pulled in lots of different directions. There's way more competition for, for attention now. What is the unique contribution public media could make if to engage young people? That was, I thought, the most fantastic motivation to work on this project. So we did work. We created our own research for the field called the missing middle that dives into what young people are like today, what their what they are, their likes and dislikes and what they hope to see, which is the research you just cited, Alex. But we've also, in parallel with this, done a lot of work to understand the field. We've gone out to survey the system and gotten well over 100 responses to just what kind of work are you, are you doing right now? Or if not doing work with young people, what, what would you be doing? Um, or is there interest? And found that there is actually a lot of work happening in the system, but not well known necessarily because it tends to be fairly local and small because it's championed usually by a very motivated individual or a team, but it doesn't necessarily bubble up to the biggest priorities within a station. On the other end of the spectrum, there are a couple of really giant presences in the field. You know, you have PBS NewsHour's Student Reporting Labs, which is an amazing national program that's adopted all over the country and by schools. There's brilliant work at GBH, and KQED in San Francisco. So there are some of those players, but I think the idea is those are fantastic models and great work, but there has to be something that every station can consider if they want to engage young people. But it comes back to this idea of deciding with and for kids that ultimately young people have strong ideas about like what you said, like representation, the kind of media they want, their ability to navigate mis- and disinformation, how they verify their own sources, how they look for authenticity, how they manage their identities online, ensure that they are protecting their own privacy and being careful about how they conduct themselves in different kinds of spaces. So lots of stuff that I think people who are, are regular consumers of, of the youth media research know, but not necessarily translated into opportunity for public media. So that's kind of where we are now. And then the next phase of our work, which we hope to do in the years ahead, would be more about seeding models and supporting station adoption and growing the community of folks who are already raising their hand and connecting them better. Yeah, the, this network of, of public media stations that are all doing different approaches or, you know, local approaches to try to break through that noise and make, you know, be be visible and be effective and be useful and, and interesting to the the teens and tweens in their community, but are underserved. And then these findings that, that are a little bit of a shakeup. I want to, I want to quote a couple of these and then Zaza, I want to bring you in and ask you a question about, about video. One of the findings I thought was interesting, it says, when teens and tweens encounter content that is developed by adults without youth input, it often strikes them as perpetuating stereotypes about teens or as being out of touch. They, they want to see the diversity they see in their generation 
and perceive content as authentic. They wanted to see, you know, it says, regardless of format, teens and tweens felt they'd matured past the often simple storylines directed at their age group and wanted to see things that address everyday challenges. It's it's really humbling and makes a lot of sense. I mean, I can't, growing up now, it's a different world. So Zaza, question for you about, it can be about what we, what we just talked about, but I also want to bring in this video aspect because one of the set of findings from this is that video dominates media experiences for teens and tweens and social media is basically a go-to for discovery and search. So people find what they're looking for through social media and other channels and then doing videos. And there was a recommendation about public media might even think about how-to videos because how-to videos are short-form content that kids find very useful for how to do specific things. Jungans Cooney and Sesame have been were pioneers in using television in education for many years, and now we're in this sort of short-form video world. What do you think educational media, you know, will increasingly look like in this TikTok streaming how-to kind of world? Well, you can't, this is a beautiful question, but also really complex and, and kind of hard to answer everything in its entirety. But there are a few things that, that come to mind. So, so when I started working, I met Michael when I was a, a consultant and we sort of collaborated on conducting sort of a landscape analysis, looking at tech and media that is, ends up in the hands of, of, children, kids, teens. The CUNY Center kind of looks at the whole age spectrum from zero to 18. Even though Sesame Street is for a younger audience, the CUNY Center is looking at it like that whole spectrum. So one of the things we did was just look across the industry and try to understand what's going on. What are the trends to expect and anticipate? Uh, so we can dig into that. But I, I think your question is around, your question about videos specifically is just trying to understand what it means in the lives of, of young people. I look at this as a designer, as a sort of human-centered designer. It's sort of like when you design something for the most vulnerable. At the D school, they like to call this the extreme user. That's the language they used to use when I was a student there. The person who is most marginalized, most forgotten, if you can design something that works for them, it's going to work for everybody else. It's going to resonate with a lot of other people's needs. So an example of this is when we started putting ramps on all the sidewalks at the traffic lights so that if you're in a wheelchair, you can cross the street safely. That's something that cyclists use, people in strollers, people on scooters, much to my dismay. It just sort of opened up the universe of who could use this space, right? So designing for somebody who is marginalized or less visible ends up being the most inclusive approach that you can take. And I think this applies like the way we're thinking about kids and including kids and thinking about how kids use video also applies here. So so when you were kind of reading this result from the study that they feel like the stories don't represent who they really are, like we don't get it. It's oversimplifying for me as a black woman, <laughs> for me as an African immigrant in the United States. It really resonates like, yes, when I'm watching TV, when I'm watching video, it feels like it's sort of this this version of myself that's in a glass and doesn't really connect with who I really am or anybody that I know, right? So so there's a lot of echoes there for, I think, a lot of other groups. There is this really fantastic, I know you, you usually ask this question, like, what's a great resource? There's this really fantastic group based in LA. I think they're like UCLA affiliated called the Center for Storytellers and Scholars or Scholars and Storytellers. What they do is actually work with the big studios and have them do, oh, you're launching a pilot and you have a queer character. Let's actually dig into like how you write about this character in the script and focus group and talk about ways that you can better handle 
the representation of the character, but also treatment of their, you know, their wants and their needs and their motivations and how they walk through the world and, and do better service to that topic. Because we want you to engage with these themes and TV and video, but we want you to kind of do it in a way that feels real and true to how people live in that experience. So that's an example of, of ways that I think the answer is not to avoid talking about things, but to do justice to the topic by actually doing your homework, right? Slowing down a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to go on and on and on. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll pause and give Michael a chance to jump in on the question, but I have more to say. It's just that I, I don't want to you know, kill all the time. Saza, you, I think you, you said it perfectly. And I also was going to mention the Center for Scholars and Storytellers as one great example of, I guess, and, and they've some of their recent research reports are really well worth checking out, even though they're targeting the film and media industry. It's about story. It's about authenticity. It's really trying to achieve some kind of honesty in the way you make make things that are are for kids. I mean, generally speaking, too, when the, and the age appropriate design code talks about this, it's not just about what's created for kids, but also what is likely to be used by kids. And so you have to really apply this broadly too. It's really for everybody that, that will all benefit from from better practices in that space. And then in the designing for the edges part, I mean, unfortunately, we realize that most technologies are just not made with anybody in mind, except the people who are in the room making, it, right? <laughs> right? And so yeah. one approach, one approach is to just expand who's in the room and make it easier for that to happen. And then maybe over time, you can you can build in a sense of the value of doing that by having practices that are easily understood and adoptable, for example. We've tried to, in a incremental way do some of the work though that they do like for the public media project last year or this past summer rather we had our own youth fellowship where we had 10 amazing young people join us and ultimately it was while it's designed to be for an experience for them ultimately what was generated by them was guidance for us and for stations that we're working with in the field where their own insights about the kind of media environments that they live in, what they want, what they like and dislike the same, basically they were living representations of the missing middle research in a way that that became something where by the end we were building resources for stations that would live on past the fellowship. It's not rocket science. It's just a commitment to doing that work, putting your money where your mouth is in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say some of the trends to anticipate. And so, so what Michael is saying is, if I can just reiterate it, what Michael is saying is it's important to have kids in the room, right? Whoever you're designing for, whoever you might overlook, it's important to bring them in the room at some point, hopefully as early as possible in your process and design with them. And I think that gets easier and easier to do or to see the reason why as we start to think about like inclusive design as we start to think about equity and diversity and what that really means. I think the the pandemic and, and just sort of the last three, four years for me have been a really exciting time just to see how these conversations are entering spaces that never felt like spaces where you could talk about inclusiveness or identity or, you know, belonging and things like that. And, and, and I think it's, it's sort of been, so, so when you ask about trends, this is one of the trends, like this is kind of exciting. Like what is, what is everyone's asking themselves? What does inclusiveness mean to us? What does belonging mean here? As far as like spaces like TikTok go, YouTube and video, it's important for that question to continue to be at the center of how we think about content, how we think about engagement with audiences. One of the things that for me have, I, I think there's like a lot of potential to unpack or dig deeper is when we are creating educational content, 
I think we tend to think of these false divides between like education and entertainment, but there's kind of something in between where people are using. I was talking to a researcher the other day and she studies MOOCs and looks at the types of behavior. And so one of the critiques of MOOCs has been completion rates, right? She does data analytics and she wants to kind of understand, is this a real critique? Is it authentic or not? And so looking at the numbers, what you see is, is it's not that people aren't completing it because of some failure in the design of the content. It's actually that people are going there for different reasons. So she could see sort of clusters around a different type of learner who's signing up for, let's say, a Coursera course because they're using it as a reference. Like, I just want to get a definition of what this concept is. And (laughs) I don't actually want to take the whole class. I don't care about the assignment. So I'm going to go straight to week six because I want to, you know, dig deeper. And, And my husband is like an engineer and he's doing that right now. Like he's taking a Coursera class because they're doing something at work and he, you know, rather than going through a textbook or encyclopedia or whatever, the videos have become the reference, right? The reference tool. And so that's a, like a really important trend to think about when it comes to short form video. How do you make it easy for people to search and kind of engage in the content as they see fit, as opposed to assuming that there's like a linear way of engaging? How do you think about different types of users coming in at different points? I just wanted to make sure I answered that question because I think it's a really good one about trends. <laughs> the listeners, like that's Great. something to think about. Yeah, It's a fascinating conversation. And I, I, I would love to hear more about, about all these ideas. So maybe we can set up a part two because there's a lot in there to unpack. Coursera recently just launched a clips service for exactly that type of user where they're breaking their courses into clips. And I think they have 50,000 or 100,000 clips where you can search for any concept and find, you know, the little tiny bit of a course that talked about it, because exactly that kind of user you mentioned, and, and we all know anybody who's, who's spent any time with a teenager recently, they use YouTube or TikTok to look up anything. It's their reference. Yeah. You say, oh, I just, here's a new thing. I'll look it, I'll look it up on YouTube. I'll look it up on TikTok. It is such a common behavior and something that is so alien. I'll speak for myself here, but the idea of using YouTube as a as a reference to look something up is not my generation at all. But it is so common. So I think the short form video world is going to be is going to be fascinating. We only have time for one more question, but we will we'll definitely have to follow up with with both of you here. But one of the things that I think is so interesting about Jung Gans Kuni and the center and the, your thought process is it's really about the educational potential of, of new technology starting back in back 50 years ago with television as a new technology. Over the years, you've put out reports about using tablets, about using games in learning, augmented and virtual reality, you know, all sorts of new technologies and how can they be used to bridge that gap, you know, that entertainment education gap that you, you just mentioned, Zaza. So for both of you, when you look at the landscape right now, what technologies excite you most for education? Are there technologies that you think are about to sort of hit an inflection point either in schools or in informal at-home use? I'm so curious what you both say to that. Zaza, why don't we start with you? So what I think is going to hit or has already hit a will soon is AI, machine learning in schools. 
Michael, we can we talk about Oko? There's probably not a lot of time to like really outline what we did, but we collaborated with a, a startup that is called Oko Labs, a really fantastic founder who wanted to engage with researchers and sort of dig deeper before launching the product. We used this process of engaging kids as early as possible in the design process. What they're trying to build is a tool that will be in classrooms, helping third, fourth, and fifth graders learn math. So it's sort of like an intelligent tutor who the kids can do small group work with while the teacher's sort of circulating. So just kind of like a classroom aid that's all powered by AI. And I think this is something that will be in classrooms, in working spaces, in sort of collaborative spaces. We're going to blink and it'll be there. It's already there in many forms, but but just that's something to watch out for. Personally, I'm interested in VR <laughs> and AR. I'm really curious about the sort of learning simulation types of games, especially as they might apply to sort of professional development. I know there's some folks experimenting with this in like management training. So you, you get to practice on in the simulation and not on real people with real lives and no problems. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, what are you excited about? Well, that was that was a really great example, but maybe then to contrast the sort of high tech example, I'd go a little bit more conventional or low tech. I mean, Alex, you, you mentioned Coursera, you know, short form learning. And I'm, I'm enthralled by this idea, the rise of how to videos and the idea that, that video platforms are the sort of de facto search engine now for learning. Mm-hmm. Kids in the pandemic, especially it accelerated this trend, but the kid, the kids are innately looking to learn, right. And, and seeking it wherever. They say search it up instead of look it up, right? But uh, it's like, <laughs> but but where the search happens keeps changing. The algorithms that match them to content obviously keep getting smarter. But there's still this idea that there's kids want to learn, they want to verify, they're looking for trust in a way. And so, like a really teacher, the form of who a teacher might be is is I think changing rapidly. It could be anybody who seems to know what they're talking about and it's no longer a credential thing or an age thing. It's just somebody who can explain something in a way that makes sense and resonates with the person who's doing the search. There's a lot of really interesting potential. And the theme I love about that, aside from the go look for anything kind of uh, learning environment that that the video landscape has become is this idea of connectedness. I think that one of the scariest things about technology is that we all kind of go diving into our screens and don't actually talk to each other. But if there's a potential for us to feel closer to each other because we've learned something from a random stranger, that's kind of motivating too. And it's an, a very ill-formed thought I'm sharing with you. I'm hoping to think about it some more. No, that's amazing. I am very excited about all of those trends. I love the idea of AI in the classroom as a sort of teacher aid. It feels like that world has already shifted to you know, video, short form video platforms as the de facto references. But I don't just don't think that the education world has really caught up to it. And the idea that there are some online personalities, which may be other users, they may be peers, they may be trusted teachers, they may be credentialed teachers, or or none of the above, being the sort of, hey, uh, here's a new idea you learn about in the classroom, every kid is about to Google that and YouTube that, and they're all going to find the same video from one person. That is like a very surreal, but very common, I think, experience right now that as ed tech people and educators, I don't think we've even begun to get our mind around. I think one of the reasons why TikTok is and how-to videos are such an exciting technology is that they're often made by 
near peers or or peers. They're not they're not coming down from above. You're not watching, you know, Bob Vila fix a sink. You're watching another teenager in another country or somebody in the next state over who's three years older than you talk to you about about how something works. And that's much more relatable and understandable in some ways. There's there's a lot in there. It's really exciting. I also love VR. I don't know if it's going to take off or not. I go back and forth. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the day. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) We we, we interview a lot of metaverse folks on this podcast and I'm, I'm bullish on it, but I'm like, you know, there's also been a lot of crashes in the past in that world. So it's really interesting. So one other really interesting finding from this, this public media study is, is about online learning and how, you know, the sort of young Gen Z learners, some people really take to online learning, but a number really have struggled with sort of managing the flood of communications and deadlines that that come with with online learning. I'm curious from your perspective, from from Joan Gans Cooney, from Sesame, you know, what do we, how do you think about this, this generation of youth and how they learn online or how they sometimes don't always like learning online? It's funny to think about that research now because we conducted the missing middle research in the first year of the pandemic. We had planned actually a whole different way to manage the research with a smaller group of kids in person. And as part of our overall revision to our plan for the year, ended up going fully online and interviewing lots more kids in lots more places across the country over Zoom, which had its own kind of you know, unique challenges, but also great affordances. But so at the time, they were very online, as we all were. And I think that, as you were mentioning, Alex, in the in the research, the the rise of how to videos as a new form of ed tech, let's say, even though it's a fairly low tech ed tech, the the thing that struck me when talking to young people, and and I not only in our research, but I saw this in other people's videos of interviews with kids, where they would say like when they would ask kids what they were doing online, if they asked them if they were doing anything educational, they would always say, no, I don't, I don't do that. I don't like that. But then you would ask them what they were doing. And invariably it was all things like I learned how to cook something, or I learned this musical instrument, or I learned about X, Y, and Z esoteric topic that I care about. And so it was endlessly about learning new things. A lot of it was over video, a lot of it over the sort of typical video platforms that we all know. And so it was just became the def- like the same way we used to call, we used to call YouTube the, the default search engine for kids. I think it also became the default learning platform. And, and that has now in the last couple of years transitioned to TikTok as it is ascendant in terms of screen time, let's say. But YouTube still dominates. Even in the most recent readout, I think 95% of kids use YouTube and something like 75% are on TikTok, I think. So, but rapidly on its way up. So between the repository of everything of YouTube and the algorithmically served up stuff that they know kids might be interested in, eventually you end up having a sort of personalized learning environment created for you. Even if it might, if, if it's, it might be something that's really d- deliberate, like an instrument. My son actually taught himself guitar entirely from YouTube. He's an example yeah. of one. Wow. My younger daughter taught her friends how to scramble eggs on FaceTime. So sometimes <laughs> it goes the other direction. But the point I guess I wanted to make that this is leading me into is that in addition to the fact that you can learn pretty much anything, you can also learn it from somebody who's not an anointed authority and that they may be your age, they may be a lot younger than you, 
They may be from a different country, or you could look at 10 versions of the same thing and, and take what you will from them. So this idea that, that we become social through asynchronous learning opportunities like that is just kind of an amazing thing. So that to me was the big ed tech pandemic shift. I've always, I've worked in ed tech for my, almost my entire career now, which is many years, but I've always been disappointed in the transformational power of, of ed tech. It's always been like, let's do this more efficiently. And then we'll do it even more efficiently, but never in a way that necessarily, not always in a way that inspires. So I think in this, in this sense, kids go to it. It's so effective that they don't even know that, that it's educational. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, the, the, we were just uh, looking at a, a new Washington Post editorial about a Gen X parents of Gen Z tweens. And, and they mentioned some really interesting things about Gen Z being very sincere uh, compared to sort of cynical Gen X and being very interested in global events and diverse and all, all of these great things. And I'm curious how you think that plays out in their online behavior as well. Uh, Zaza, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. That's a good question. So what I think is, is kind of interesting is how, you know, when we move to online learning, I, okay, so I, I I'm out here in San Jose during the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of, you know, opportunity, there weren't a lot of opportunities to go out and give workshops and, and teach in person, but you would, you know, show up on a Zoom call and you're a guest speaker. And I volunteer here as sort of a director of programs for this uh, film festival, local African film festival. And we'd go to classes and, and teach about, you know, African history and, and use film as a way of talking about it. And one of the things that was really interesting about observing this generation is how playful they are. So I'm thinking of what Michael was saying, that they are not thinking of themselves as learning when they're looking up videos on how to bake and, and you know, knit and sew and esoteric topics. They're also coming into, into Zoom or whatever platform they're using and engaging in chat in, which is not like a new technology, right? It, but engaging in chat in these really interesting and weird ways. So So what strikes me is that this generation has had to learn how to be kids in this like really interesting way. Like they used Michael, I think you saw this also in the play testing session. Like they would use chat in this really obnoxious way. And then the teachers are like freaking out, like stop pressing one key. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Alex, I don't know if this is an answer to your question, but it's just sort of, I, I, maybe I'm going no, to make this I, a question. I think it is. What, what I'm hearing is that, you know, this generation has grown up with these technologies. They say digital natives. Even that term is maybe getting old fashioned, but they've grown up using these technologies all the time. And they don't think of it as very formal. They don't think of online learning with the quotes around it. They, they might not even think they're learning like you both mentioned, but they live online. They live their entire life online. So anytime they're curious about anything, they're going to look it up in the platforms they're already in. We look from the outside and say, online learning. <laughs> they don't think of it yeah, at yeah. all. And, and, and they find ways to, this is not new findings, right? Like they find ways to build in interactivity, even when it wasn't intended in the, you know, the original design of a tool, they find ways to make it their own. They find ways to engage, ways to, to thrive, right? Maybe this is a question for Michael, like from the research that you've been doing, or the CUNY Center has done, you know, over, over decades, how do you capitalize on that? Like, how do you take advantage of the amazing ability of, of young people to always surprise you and to always find new and like, somewhat rebellious ways to use something? It, that really pulls on the rest of this conversation we've had together, doesn't it? That 
the way you take advantage of it is you give them the floor. I feel like that that ultimately, you know, kids. Some people talk very optimistically about Gen Z kids as a bridging generation that will help us move out of the morass that we find ourselves. And that Washington Post article you mentioned, Alex, cites the Pew Center's research on Gen Z kids, which talks about how they're more educated than previous generations. They're more diverse ethnically. They're more likely to be comfortable coming out as LGBTQ. They see the role of government as helping people. They believe that same-sex marriage is good for society. Like Those are things that were in comparison to prior generations, they are incrementally more in those directions. And so they maybe are less encumbered by things. I mean, personally, I love the article because it also gives us Gen X parents a little credit for (laughs) enabling or at least getting out of the way, not just sharing our love of 90s music with them, you know, the oldies. So I think that these kids are also known to be less willing to wait for adulthood to take charge. And so we should just get out of the way. I think that's why we see the rise of, at least in my field, not just the work we do, but the rise of youth councils um, and advisories that uh, are not just like a one and done kind of thing, but actually a sustained effort. Our, our next-gen public media initiative had a youth fellowship for about five or six months this year, and it was just an incredible learning experience for all of us. There's opportunity. You just have to do it. I love that response, Michael, because, you know, it, it brings us back to the earlier part of this conversation, you know, the work that we did together about like, what does online, you know, what does digital well-being mean? And trying to shift the conversation away from, oh, it, you know, safety and addressing risks and trying to, to sort of mitigate and, and minimize the kind of harms that kids are exposed to, towards a space of let's design something that will allow them to thrive. Because for me, like that word, that idea of thriving, that notion really means stepping back and like, you know, letting them figure out what that means and giving them room to, to sort of grow and you know, spread their wings, et cetera, et cetera. But like a lot, of, you know, you said it much better. I, I love the way you put it. Just get out of the way and let them let them do what they do. Right. They sometimes call that uh, emergent behavior in some of the literature. Right. It's like that idea you, you said, Zaza, where you give them a chat platform and they're going to hit one key over and over so that they take up the whole screen. That's not certainly not what the chat platform was intended for, but as soon as you see somebody do it, you realize it's possible, it goes viral, and then everybody has this new habit. And younger generations that live in these worlds are constantly coming up with these new ideas. And I, I love your point, Michael, about they're not sort of, they, they want to take over, they want to sort of jump right in and be part of the conversation and be, you know, be giving ideas and not just sort of inheriting them from their from their elders. Meanwhile, we're at a time when when our government is is the by far the oldest, you know, government we've ever had. And I think that, you know, that that tension is is really interesting. Uh, it's uh, we've seen it play out in a lot of ways, like the Parkland kids and, and lots of other ways. I wanted to pick up on something you both just said about kids do these really unusual things online. They find what they're doing. They don't consider things learning. One of the real specializations of the CUNY Center that is so interesting is that it researches community learning. And that's really how children, you know, quote unquote, interact with media on their own or together with teachers, family members, or their peers. And this is really an interesting aspect of the CUNY Center's research. Tell us a little bit about some of how how you think about this sort of community media engagement or community online behavior. It really ties back to the founding premise of Sesame Street, right? Where the original creators of the show 
developed content that could be enjoyed by really young kids who loved Muppets and great songs and silly jokes while also learning the letters and numbers and the rest, how to be kind, the important things. But at the same time, their families could watch it with them because you had these amazing stars on the show. I mean, I remember seeing Stevie Wonder on Sesame Street when I was like mm-hmm. four mm-hmm. and my my head exploding to the point where I actually waited for the whole rest of the day to see the same episode run again at the end of the day, because I wanted to see that, that again. <laughs> right. So I was hooked. And so if your family watched with you, that meant that the, the learning continued off the screen because you would be engaging with the, the caring adult in your life and keep talking about the stuff and maybe that would extend to other things. Obviously, the media landscape is vastly different now. When we published our new co-viewing report more than 10 years ago, that was still early days for personal devices, right? The iPad was probably a year too old at that point when kids weren't all like holding an iPhone in the stroller. But this idea that media would become enjoyed in different ways, but there was a risk that it would become very one-to-one instead of something that can be shared. And so I think we're always looking for opportunities in media design to leverage multi-generational shared experiences. And some of the best apps are, are things that, that like both both adults and kids can do together. But there is a broader phenomenon in society where we do our, when we're in person, at least, we're, we're on our own. I think, obviously, the kids we're describing or we're just talking about are extremely social all the time online, sometimes when they're in the same room, sometimes not. So what joint media engagement, the new term for this basically is anywhere at some, in some ways, it's a different paradigm. Little kids and their families are still watching TV or they're still enjoying a, sh- a show together, but I think it's less so. It's always a challenge to design the kinds of opportunities that kids and families want to do together, different from teens and tweens in their peer group, kind of being silly, creative, hitting the one key a million times, um, or, you know, but looking, looking to get all of the typical business of kids done on a, on a, on a screen. So, but when we think about this well-being concept that we've talked about a little bit, Zaza, you just said well-being a few minutes ago, right? That I think we, we try to unpack what that means, maybe be less, less trapped up in the affordances of the media and the tech that the kids are using and think about a holistic kind of child-centered outcome. That I think is a, is a much more certainly more inspiring way to think about the work but how it sets a bar for us like what would it be like how might we achieve a well-being children's well-being in digital and non-digital spaces they're more fluid about it like they're less encumbered as we are we're like oh my gosh i'm on this magical device you know that was invented in my lifetime these kids are like this is this is it this is the world right here in this in this digital device and it also blends with all the other things i do this initiative that we partner with lego and unicef on called Ritech talks about the opportunity to use technology to, to for things like developing competence emotional regulation empowerment social connection but also things like creativity play like lego is very focused on digital learning through play and this is this is a key aspect of that is if if you feel safe and secure if you are in an inclusive environment if you are feeling self-actualized then you can get to these spaces of play that that every kid needs so i think that that's an easier way to think about the benefits of using media but connectedness is is usually a big one in that list yeah i mean there's so much 
it's a fascinating answer. It's so, so much to unpack in there. I love that idea of sort of multi-generational shared experiences or joint media engagement. And, and, you know, it strikes me that working across generations, having teachers and, and students or family member, parents and students in the same media or learning app is a really rich experience. And it's also completely different than a, an app or learning experience where it's it's peer-to-peer, where it's multiple kids of the same age. The behaviors are different. The, you know, the feeling is different, but they both can be really optimized. That's probably not the right word, but they can both be incredibly enriching, incredibly good opportunities to build relationships as well as actually, you know, improve learning. It's an exciting area. I was going to say, when I think of the pandemic, that's what it really meant to me. It was like finding ways to connect with my nieces and nephews who are halfway across the world. For us, we scheduled Among Us sessions, right? And it would be intergenerational in the sense that the youngest is like 13 or 14 and the oldest is 40 something. And, you know, it was just their approach to playing this game with us was like very different from how they would do it on their own. Right. <laughs> but I don't know, when, when we think about, when you ask questions like what's the, you know, what's the future of educational technology? Like, where's this going? Maybe it's not so much, I think my answer was like AI and VR, but maybe it's not so much like what the technology is, but it's like, how do we find new ways of connecting? How do we find mm. new ways of intergenerational joint media engagement and, and all these how do we find new ways of using these tools to create and learn and not so much the new tool itself, but how we're going to engage with it. Yeah. Just the way that, you know, Sesame was a way for parents and children to engage in media together in the age of television. Now we're in the age of everybody has a screen attached to their face and you're, you're not sitting in a living room anymore. So what does that connection look like? I think that's a really deep question for for all of us in ed tech and in media to think about i love i love that because we're talking about teens and tweens the sort of the operating word for joint media engagement multi like intergenerational media engagement is cringe <laughs> that so much of there is so much risk as an older person right not a kid playing in the spaces that these kids are in and trying to be authentic that's not okay. That's cringe. Like you're not a kid. You can't do those things. Or just to be yourself, also cringe. So you see why platforms like Facebook have such a declining right. use by kids because, oh, my mom does that. Right. I actually heard that verbatim on the subway today when I heard two teenagers talking about Facebook. It truly happened this morning. But if you were to play into TikTok or any of the platforms kids are using, like I sometimes show up in my kids' be real photos because I happen to be there in the moment. But all of that is cringe. Like, don't comment. Don't like my thing. <laughs> you know, stay away. That's that's terrible. Like, so that's the minefield of the new joint media engagement. Yeah, de- definitely is. And it, 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 there's a lot of ways to go wrong. As somebody in that wrong generation, I remember looking over the shoulder of kids I used to tutor when they'd be playing online games and they'd have these incredible conversations going with hundreds of other users, just like whipping by the screen in real time. But anytime you'd actually catch any line, it'd be like, oh man, this is, this is not my, this is not my world. Zaza, let me start with you. I want to ask what is one resource that could be a book, newsletter, podcast, blog, anything that you would recommend, and it can be more than one, for somebody who wants to learn more about any of the many topics we discussed today? Good question. So I think that if you want to learn more about kids and how they think, 
Jason Yip's work. Jason Yip is a professor at the uh, University of Washington. We've collaborated a lot with him and the lab that he runs, which is called Kids Team. Kids Team is kind of a network of uh, different labs across the country that are studying ways to design, co-design with kids and get, basically you get access to a group of kids who may have like three, four, sometimes even five years of experience thinking like designers. And they're really good at you know, pulling ideas apart, but also at like generative co-creation sessions. So check out the research that they publish. It's a really good way of trying to understand what goes on in the minds of kids. Another tool that I would, a resource that I'd love to recommend is, this is a little less, you know, it's kind of off the beaten path. It's a newsletter by a friend and colleague of mine called Ella Bin Er. She's a former IDEO designer researcher, and now she teaches at Olin College. She writes this little newsletter, and she has this really interesting framework called the Innovators Compass, which is a really cool way of, it's a compass in the sense that it's like finding your way through the unknown and doing so in a creative way. And you can apply it to the work that you do if you are an entrepreneur, or you can apply it to planning uh, you know, the end of the summer slump and, and just sort of how you want your year to go. It's it's a really great visioning tool that guides you through how to ask questions and how to explore what's possible. So the Innovators Compass. Fantastic. Jason Yip's research and Ella Ben-Ur, the Innovators Compass. We will provide links to those resources. Michael, how about you? What are some resources, again, any kind that you would recommend for people who want to learn more? So I guess lately, by virtue of the work we're doing here, I've been a bit of a connoisseur of resources and guides and playbooks that do the kind of work that we also aspire to do, which is to bridge what the knowledge base tells us and what researchers who know and work with kids tell us around how to do basically to, to design for kids' benefit, I guess, to, to sort of roll that up. That can be interpreted in a broad range of ways. There's a group in the UK called the Five Rights Foundation. That's the organization actually that successfully developed the framework that became the age-appropriate design code that was passed in the UK last year. California recently adopted a very similar version of that as the California age-appropriate design code, which now has the, the tech industry in a tizzy over how to interpret those regulations. A lot of the ideas are high-level and I mean, voluntary in the sense that, I, I mean, in, in the UK, you have the ICO, like an actual government body that's charged with enforcing in the US, how that would go is, is still kind of unclear, I think, but the regulatory environments are very different, but they have created a whole, for me, that more than regulation, a resource guide, if you can find people who are willing and interested and but need help, giving them guideposts, examples, methods, and maybe connecting them to others is, is really this new frontier, I think. And people, there are a lot of people, allies within companies that make products for kids that would want this stuff. So like a year ago, maybe Five Rights launched an initiative called Playful by Design, Free Play in a Digital World. And they also recently put out sort of a pack of cards you can use to design free play. I think there's this is responding to a, an idea that play in digital spaces can be constrained by the design of the environment and kids have a right to have free play that is uninhibiting the things that they want to do. That's one that I'm inspired by. And then since I'm talking about five rights, they just won an award 
like this week, like the Lovies or something like that. This an award that I hadn't heard of, but uh, it recognized another amazing contribution that they published this year called Make Making Child Online Safety a Reality. It's like a it's a toolkit. Again, a design specification for teams to consider how you actually take all of the guidance around privacy, safety, security, and turn it into something that you can operationalize for the development of your product. I think those things are. Uh, that's not a general audience reading, but I think it should be. And it, it's the fact that people are now trying to address specifically the challenging middle between what researchers know and what designers and developers need. Trying to bridge that gap is really inspiring to me. Yeah. And we talked earlier about the Center for Scholars and Storytellers. I just want to. Yes, yeah. we did. Put that yes. link as well. Fantastic resources, all new to me. I'm, I'm sure they'll be new and exciting for lots of our listeners as well. And couldn't agree more that that gap between research and practice is just this yawning gap in, in so much of ed tech. And I'm glad it's starting to get closed, at least within some of the children's design world theories and practices. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for being here. Michael Preston and Zaza Kabuyandando from Jungian Skuni Center with Sesame Workshop. What a great conversation. You're welcome back anytime to talk more about the EdTech landscape. It's been a great to have you both. Alex, it's been so fun to be here. Thank you for hosting us. Thanks for listening to this episode of EdTech Insiders. If you like the podcast, remember to rate it and share it with others in the EdTech community. For those who want even more EdTech Insider, subscribe to the free EdTech Insiders newsletter on Substack.